Good morning. Uh, my name is Sean Acre. I'm the pastor of students and young adults at Liberty Heights Church. I get the honor to bring the next passage in Ephesians chapter 4 to us this morning. But I want to start with a little bit of interaction. And I want to ask you to kind of fill in the phrase here, all right? Y'all ready for this? You got you to talk back. You got to get ready for this. You can talk the talk, but can you... There you go, walk the walk. So that's a phrase that uh, a lot of us know, we all know that. And so I kind of got curious this week as I was preparing for this message, and I thought, where did that phrase like come from? And so I started doing some research on the internet, and I found something interesting. We, we, we'll maybe never know who originated it, but the first time it was ever in print came from Ohio. Uh, a newspaper over in Mansfield, Ohio, printed these words about Harold Herring of the North American Watch Company. It says, although he has no gilded medals upon his bosom, Howard Herring of the North American Watch Company walks the walk and talks the talk of a hero today. I thought that was pretty interesting. So what we've seen over the last few weeks is that Pastor Brad has walked us through Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, and he told us at the beginning of this that 1 through 3 were very heavy on doctrine. Remember, he warned you, don't go to sleep, don't skip church over the next few weeks, because when we transition into chapter 4, we're going to start finding the application that we read about in the doctrine in chapters 1 through 3 as we talked about our identity in Christ. So today, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to kind of look at this question, and we're going to ask the question, and just like how Harold Herring was remarked for walking the walk, we're going to look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and how he's telling us it's time to start walking that walk. So uh, as we look through these first 16 verses, there's a question that I want to answer. And the question is simply this, what does it look like to walk worthy of our calling? If you're here today and you're a follower of Christ Jesus, then you have been called to walk in a certain way. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ Jesus, I want you to listen closely because Paul gives us um, a few things that we're going to look at this morning. He gives us some descriptors of what it means to be a Christ follower. He gives us some descriptors of things that we should watch out for in our lives and things that we should be striving to stay away from. And then he bundles it all together and gives us the payoff at the end. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So read with me in verse 1 through 16 of chapter 4. It says this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So right off the bat, what we find is we see Paul, he uses this word, I beseech you. What he's literally saying is, I am begging you to walk worthy of the new identity that you have found that I described to you in chapters 1 through 3. I am begging you to walk worthy of this calling. And it is our destiny as Christ followers to live this way for the kingdom. Now, over the last few weeks over in the the high school, we, we did this game. And we said, hey, can you figure out the top eight Disney movies of all time? All right, so none of the little interaction. Can you tell me what you think is the number one Disney movie of all time? What is it? I can't hear that. Y'all are like dead asleep. Come on, what, what, what is it? Cinderella, Mickey Mouse, Frozen. It's not Frozen, thank Lord. All right, it's The Lion King. The Lion King was the number one. And, and I got to admit, The Lion King was one of my favorite movies when I was in college. That's weird, but it was. I loved that movie. And so there's a perfect illustration that comes from the movie The Lion King as Paul is talking about our destiny and that we have, are supposed to live these extraordinary lives in the kingdom. And, and if, you, if you've ever seen the movie, you've got Mufasa, and he's the king, right? Mufasa. And so he has a little cub, and his name's Simba. Well, Simba runs off with Nala, and they get into some trouble. They do some pretty stupid stuff, which results in Mufasa getting killed, trying to protect Simba. And so Simba runs off, and he begins to live this Hakuna Matata-type lifestyle, this no worries, no responsibilities, just kind of whatever-I-want-to-do lifestyle. And after he does this for a certain amount of time, he has a vision of his father. If you remember this scene, he's laying by this water, and he sees this vision. And this is what James Earl Jones, I don't have a very good James Earl Jones voice, but this is what he says. He says, remember who you are. You are my son, the one true king. And what Paul is beseeching or begging of us is to remember, if you are a Christ follower, who you are, you are the son of the one true king. You are the royalty. And if you're not a Christ follower, that's what's on the table. He's saying, listen, I want you to become a follower of Christ, the one true king. You can be the son, the daughter of the one true king by placing your faith and your trust in that king. You can become royalty. And Paul is begging us to start acting like it. So a few things I want to draw from this passage this morning I want us to look at is, as we talk about this walking worthy of our calling and as we looked at our identity in the first three chapters, we need to make sure that, number one, our, our attitude matches our identity. Look back at verse 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beg you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring the, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that therefore that he talks about in verse 1 makes that transition from doctrine to application. It's that transition from principle now to practice. It's impossible for us as Christ followers to live a Christian lifestyle without knowing the realities of that that Christ has provided for us. And he lists them out. 
So as a result of this, what Christ has done for us, the purpose of our life is ultimate satisfaction for who? For us. No, right? Ultimate satisfaction for him, for Christ, the one that died for us. And we should be living our lives in such a way that we can't imagine living any other way but than giving Christ our full satisfaction, not under obligation, but because we desire to follow him. In fact, Scripture makes it perfectly clear that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that he lives in you and we live in him. And that should be revealed in the way that we live our every day-to-day lives. This walk that Paul is talking about. So he uses this word walk in the opening sentence. And that is literally referring to our daily conduct. The day-to-day interaction in our lives. And that's what we're going to be dealing with over the next few weeks as we walk through chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians So in verse 2, Paul lays out five descriptors. And I want to walk through those, get some some better understanding of what Pastor Brad likes to call the Christianese, right? So let's walk through these descriptors. The first one we come to is lowliness. Now, if you're just a little country boy like me, I'm like, lowliness? Like, I'm, I'm low? I'm like, I'm not feeling good? I don't understand that. The word literally means humility. To humble yourself. To put others before you. And this is like the foundational virtue of the Christian lifestyle. It's humility. It's to to be humble. I've heard it said once that the man who is full of himself cannot represent the one who emptied himself. When we're living our lives in such a way that it's all about me, it's hard for us to represent the one that we read about in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 where it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We too have to walk with humility, with humbleness. The second word we come across here after lowliness is is gentleness. And gentleness is also translated meekness. Now, don't get that confused with weakness because they rhyme. That's not what they are. It involves humility and thankfulness towards God. That's what this gentleness talks about. A gentle person is never vindictive or self-defensive or avenging. A gentle person is one that, that takes this gentle and this meek behavior and they, they have self-control. Those who are angered at every nuisance and convenience of their life know nothing of meekness and gentleness. And I need to tell you there's a loophole here. This whole thought of being irritated by nuisances and inconveniences, that doesn't count if you have five kids 10 years and under. I'm just letting you know that, okay? Those of us that have five kids 10 years and under, we're exempt. Right? No. Gentleness, that gentleness that you have about you. The third word that Paul comes across here, with long suffering. Now, I usually use that word in my everyday language, right? I'm like walking around like, yeah, I've been long suffering with my kids over here, right? We don't use this language. This is Christianese. So, so what's he talking about with long suffering? I went and looked up the Greek word. The Greek word that he uses is macrothumia, which also translates, are you ready for this? Patience. It literally means long-tempered. Now, I've heard many people say, I have a pretty short temper. Don't get on my bad side and don't bother me. I have a short temper. But rarely do we hear somebody say, oh, i got a long temper. Bring it on, right? We don't get that. And he's literally saying this, this patient, it's, it's the third description that Paul demonstrates to walk in, in this growth. It's, it's an outpouring of the first two in our life. When we have this lowliness and this humility and this gentleness, it leads to patience. The patient person endures negative circumstances 
and never gives in to those circumstances. I've always prayed, God, give me patience. Give it to me right now, right? He doesn't do that. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. We read that as we go on. Bearing with one another in love. What what does that look like? What does that mean? This is the one you might want to hold on to your seat and keep looking straight forward or you're going to get in trouble. This is the love that, that literally means to take abuse from others while continuing to love them no matter what. I've been married for 15 years. It's hard to do this. It's hard for my wife to continue to love me when I give her the junk that I give her, right? I'm not going to put it all on her as she's the mean one. I, I can be that guy. So, so it says love people no matter how they treat you. It's an unqualified and unselfish love. It's loving no matter what you get in return. The last one, he talks about in verse 3, he says, keep, to keep the, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This word unity, unite. Let me show you how this adds into like a, a math equation. I liked math when I was a kid, which is weird, but I did. So let me give you this math equation. Lowliness or, or humidity, humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness gives birth then to long-suffering, and long-suffering gives birth to this forbearing love that, that Paul's talking about. And all four of these descriptors, as they finish out Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All four of these, when you have these other four, they lead to this unity. You can't help but be unified when you're, you're gentle and you're humble and you're patient and you're loving no matter what you get in return. You have no chance but to be unified. It's a simple math equation. It's not like common core math. It's just simple. One plus one equals two, right? That was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. It's all right. These virtues and the supernatural unity to which they testify are the most powerful testimony that we can have as Christ followers because there's such contrast to the attitudes and the actions of the world that we live in. We don't, we don't see these things when you look out into the world. We don't see patience and, and I'm going to love you no matter the way you treat me. We don't see gentleness. We don't see humility. No matter how perfectly planned and executed our ministries are, our programs, or our methods, listen to me. There is nothing that can reach those that Christ loves the most more than a Christ follower who possesses this checklist of things. When they're genuinely humble when they're gentle and patient and when they bear each other's love and they demonstrate this peaceful unity in the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christ follower and you're here today, that's the checklist. Somebody after the first service came up to me and goes, thanks for that list, Pastor. I said, listen, I didn't write it. I just, I'm the messenger, right? Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't write it. But that's our checklist. That's the things that we need to keep written on our mirror or on our dashboard are those things that, am I living my life this way? Because see, I have a thought that I share with people. There are people all over your life that you don't even know exist. And let me tell you something, they know you exist. And they have a thought about who you are. Let me, let me expand on this just for a minute. So uh, two of my boys play baseball. And I coach both of their baseball teams. Every Sunday when I'm done here, I run in my office, I change, and we have baseball games that start at 1 o'clock and then 4 o'clock and then life group. It's a mess. But anyway, so I have these baseball teams that I have parents on. Some of these parents I know. Some of them I intentionally get to know to build relationships with. Some of them I I don't know who they are. But let me tell you this. Every single one of them have a reputation or a thought about me even though I don't know them. By the way I carry myself, the way, they, the way I treat their boys on the baseball field, on the practice field, they have a thought about who I am. 
Let's make it a little bit more real for the rest of us in the room. Facebook, all right? If you're not on Facebook, then I don't know where you've been living for the last 15 years. But So you've got Facebook, and we've got friends on Facebook that we don't even know. Like, I'm, I'm literally going out of town next weekend with a group of guys, and, and two of these guys I'm friends with on Facebook, I've never met them in my life. That, that, that's just the way. So I love off-roading, four-wheeling. I, I've got a, a couple clubs that I'm in. And so me and some guys from the club, we're going off-roading and camping and taking our sons. And, and there's some guys that are going that I don't even know. But let me tell you this. I've drawn some, some, some conclusions about these guys even before we leave. Because I know them on Facebook. I, I know who they are. I, I see their actions. So let me ask you, those in your outer circle that you don't even know exist, maybe they go to school with your kids, maybe they work in another office or in another department at your work, but somehow they know who you are or they're friends with you cyberly through Facebook because you accepted their friend request because they knew this guy that you know, but you don't know, so on and so forth. Now they see your whole life. By the way you live your life, what do those on the outside conclude about you? Would they say that you have humility? Are you gentle in the way you carry yourself or in the way that you deal with other people? What about your patience? Do you come across as somebody who's patient or do you get so agitated when the car in front of you just won't go fast enough? Guilty, right? <laughs> Don't ask my wife about that one. Just last week, we were coming home from Columbus, and I literally pulled over on the side of the road and got out and made her drive because I couldn't take it. We don't agree on that way we drive. She doesn't like my driving. I don't like her driving. Let's just take two cars. It'd be easier, right? My patience is gone when I get behind the wheel sometimes. How, how, would, they, how would they say that about you? What about this one? Do you bear other people's loves and burdens regardless of how they treat you? Are your words to other people loving? I heard a story this week of a man. Two men were together, and this isn't a pastoral story. This is a real story I heard. And they said they were, one guy said, we were out together, and, and there was a guy across the room that clearly did not like my friend. Very public about it. He did not care for him, was not nice to him, was rude to him. And he walked up to him, shook his hand, smiled on his face, gave him a hug, asked him how he's doing, hope you're doing well, and moved on. He said he walked back, and he said, I asked him, why did you walk up to that guy knowing that everybody in this room knows how he feels about you? You guys don't get along. And this is what he was, his response was. I refuse to let a grudge go on in this world. I refuse to hold a grudge by the way anybody feels about me. That is a living, breathing, talking explanation of a person who's living their life the way Paul's listening out of here in verses 2 and 3. Go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. We've all heard it every time we've gone to a wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't pose, boast. You know, I heard a, a pastor one time at a funeral. At the very end, he got tongue-tied, and he said, love always fails. I still get made fun of for that every day. It was embarrassing. Love always fails. But no, it doesn't. Love never fails. Does your life represent that sort of love do you see somebody in a room that, that you don't care for and doesn't care for you, but you don't care, you're not going to hold a grudge, you're going to go up and you're going to extend a, a hospitable handshake and a, and a kind word to them? So here's a tough question to answer, but it makes it very applicable today. What do those in your outer circle, maybe you don't even know exist, conclude about your own personal life? Would they say, yeah, that person walks the walk that they talk? Or would they say something different? So Paul lays out our list, right? The list of things, our, our attitude should match our identity, but it can't just be our words. 
There's also got to be our actions, which leads us to our next point here in the passage. The second way that we walk worthy of our cause, we need to make sure that our activity matches our identity. Go back to, or you don't have to turn there, but think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Paul says this, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Paul is making it clear to us that not only should our attitudes reflect that of somebody who is a Christ follower, somebody who has this new identity that he's mapped out for us in chapters 1 through 3, but also our activity must line up with that identity as well. And here in the next few verses, he maps out what it looks like. So go back to verse 4, and we'll read through this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and all and you all. But to each one of us, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now skip down and and look what he says in verse 11. And And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Christ. You see the four, the four, the four. But the, he uses this word but in verse 7. And it seems to indicate a change from verses 1 through 6. Is 1 through 6 is all about here's your descriptors. Here's what it looks like in order for you to live uh, in unity. Because there's, there's one God. What does he say? There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. He's using this one language that brings us to this unity. And then he makes a shift. And in verse 7 through 16, he begins to speak of those things which we individually possess, those gifts that Christ has given to us, our unique gifting, which is another contributing factor that maps out of how we live in this unity that we just read about in verse 3. So in verse 7, Paul's making this, this shift, and he begins to describe how we're all different according to these gifts that we've been given. Therefore, if our gifting in verse 11 is unique to each person, how does it contribute to that of the unity of verse 3? We're all supposed to be unified, but we all have individual gifts. Let's look, let's explore this a little bit deeper. If you think back and go back in Genesis, go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And think about the way Adam and Eve were created. In, In what way would Adam and Eve better become one flesh? By being created exactly alike? Or... By being made very different from each other, but in a way that caused them to correspond to each other. See, the the answer is pretty simple, isn't it? The differences between Adam and Eve were by divine design so that their unity would be complete. That's why God says it. That's why Moses talks about how God says in chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, helper suitable for him. Suitable there literally means to correspond, corresponding to. I will make him a helper. Two of the exact same would not be good, so I'm going to make them very different, but I'm going to make them in such a way that they're going to correspond to each other. The same is true of the unity which God has purposed for his body, for us, the church. We share in common all the descriptors from verses 2 through 3. We all have to possess those things. Nevertheless, We're also unique in the way that God has gifted each one of us in these special uh, spiritual gifts and and acts of service that he he walks through. 
But when each Christ follower finds his or her place, the whole body grows and fulfills the mission and the ministry, which we'll see in just a minute down in verse 16. There's lots of texts throughout Scripture that deal with spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, 1 Peter chapter 4. And because we've taught extensively on those gifts in the past, today I want to keep our focus on this application of making our attitudes and our activities match our new identity in Christ. So the focus here is not on the individual, but it's on the contribution which the individual makes to the corporate body of Christ. Are you following me? If you're following me, say, let's go. All right, here we go. We're all individually gifted. But once we grab those individual gifts and we begin to use them in the body, the body, the corporate body, all of us are fulfilled as a whole. That's what he's talking about here. Look again at verse 11 and 12. He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And let me give you a little information here. There's only four gifts listed in the original text. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. We add in teachers as part of the pastor's role, but there's only four in the original text. So the, the focus here is in verse 11 and 12 is not on the individual, but it's on the contribution. It's on all of us, which the individual makes for the corporate body of Christ. And even though individual Christ followers, the saints, as he addresses us here, each has his or her unique blending of gifts, the emphasis falls on the church as a whole. So when Paul says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, what he is literally telling the church, the Christ followers who are gathered, is that the Christ followers, that Christ has gifted some to be apostles, which, by the way, that's not a gift today. Apostle was somebody who literally saw Christ in the flesh, walking on the earth. I don't think anybody here has seen Christ literally back in, the, I mean, if, if so, you're old, all right? But so that's, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about apostles. That was the... the uh, the, the apostle, that was the gifting of the apostle. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. In order that they, we, the pastors of the church, will equip those of you who are not equipped to lead and called to lead the church. So Christ called some to be apostles. Not all. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. He called some to be prophets. Not all. He called some to be evangelists. Not all. He called some to be pastors and teachers, not all. Why? So that they can equip the saints to lead the ministry of the church. In order to fulfill that second part of verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That word edifying, it actually intrigues me. It, it literally means to promote another's growth. Think about that, to promote another's growth, because typically it's all about me, it's all about me. I, you know, pastor, teach me, pastor, teach me, pastor, feed me, pastor, feed me. No, 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 no. It's my job as a pastor to equip the saints so that you can edify the body of Christ, so that you can build each other up. Paul is kind of hosting his own episode of Mythbusters here, and he's saying it, it, it's not the pastor's job to do the ministry. It's the pastor's job to play the role of a coach, to coach the saints, those who are not called to lead the church, so that you can go out and do the ministry. So now that we kind of have a better understanding, I hope, 
of our attitudes and our activities and our new identity in Christ, what is it, what, what, what's the difference? Like, what's the payoff? What, what happens next? I got my list. I kind of understand the gifts that you're leading the church. We're here doing the work. What, what's next? I'm glad you asked that question. Here's the payoff. The payoff is that we grow like Christ. We grow like Christ. I'm sure you've said it to your kids. I'm sure somebody has said it to you. Listen, the goal as a Christian is not to get to heaven. You understand that, right? That's not the goal. That's the reward. If you're a Christ follower, you're going to heaven. That shouldn't be your goal. That's your goal. You're aiming way low, right? The goal is to look more and more like Christ. I've heard that and I've said that. What does that mean? What does that look like? Glad you asked again because we're going to look at it. Let me explain it. Look at the end of this passage, verse 11. Now that we understand it a little bit, let's read to the end. And he, gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here we go. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. See, he's using that word unity again. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective Working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now track with me for just a minute because in verse 13, Paul is simply saying that work together until we all come to the same understanding. It's a joint effort that we all have to do together. But in the end of verse 13, he said something that as I was studying this kind of threw me for a, a whirlwind that I had to go and look a little bit deeper. And this is what he says. He says, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, to, to a perfect man. Like, like, what is Paul saying? Like, I've got to be perfect. I've got to be, I mean, if I understand scripture right, there's only one perfect man. I'm not perfect. Ask my wife. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. So what does Paul mean? Again, I'm glad you asked. You guys are asking some great questions this morning because I, I prepared to tell you what that meant in case you asked. The Greek word, I went and looked at the Greek here for perfect. Here's what it says, teleos, which means to be complete. To be complete, to be mature. So then is the perfect man that which each one of us, no matter our gender, man or woman, is supposed to become when we grow up in Christ, we're supposed to become perfect. I mean, that makes sense. If you look at verse 14, it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That makes sense. We should become perfect so we don't fall into this stuff. But don't forget verses 12 and 13. What does he say there? He talks about following that statement that we should reach the perfect man. Paul adds this. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Therefore, it makes sense to understand that the perfect man in verse 13 is not talking about us. It's talking about Christ himself. We as the body of Christ are to grow up together so that we might reach the stature, the maturity and completeness of Christ himself. Like he says there in the end of verse 13, 
individual growth to maturity in Christ, it's not nullified here. I'm not saying don't grow individually, but what I'm saying here is that Christ is that perfect man. And that provides a goal. Remember, our goal is not heaven. It provides us a goal for growth in the church for the saints as a whole. So we can relax a little bit. Paul's not saying you got to be perfect. Paul's saying you should strive to look more like Christ. The saints of the church as a whole should grow to look like Christ. So when we're growing towards Christ as the perfect man, what should our life look like? Go back and look at the descriptors of verse 2 and 3. Humble, patient, gentle, um, um, bearing one another in love. That's what it should look like. So that we don't resemble the descriptors in verse 14. Like children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. See, listen to me, church. If we are going to grow to become like Christ, like that perfect man, we've got to carry on our back those descriptors in verses 2 and 3, and we've got to watch out for those descriptors in verse 14. Those should be the ones that we're watching out for. We should be able to, to discern truth from error. You should be able to discern when somebody comes knocking on your door and tries to confuse you about who Christ is. And they start telling you about this great prophet that he was or this, this great man that he, he existed. We definitely say he existed. You're not fooled by the trickery of men. When you're flipping through the TV channels and you come across something that kind of tickles your ear on TV or, or in our day and age, let's just be honest, with, with internet and podcasts, we can go out and find any sermon that will tell us whatever we want to hear that sounds great and looks awesome. And what Paul's saying is here, he said, listen, I'm trying to get you to discern from the truth, from the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting by those in the world who are trying to make a quick buck in the name of the church. You need to grow in such a way that you begin to look like Christ, that you can begin to discern those things. Simply put, God wants us to grow, to become mature, to be more like Jesus, that perfect man. It's time to grow up. It's time for all of us to grow up, to to stop acting like these babies and these children and and making these messes and fighting. And what's what's the number one noise that a baby makes? Right? Screaming and yelling. And how many of you go, oh, sweet child, please lower your voice, okay? Because that's the descriptors, right? No, we're like, would you shut up? Am I allowed to say shut up in church? I think so. It's time for, I heard a pastor one time say, it's time for us to take off the bibs and take the servant's towel and begin wearing that. Listen, it's okay to be new in your faith and and to to make noise and to make messes for a while. But listen, we've been walking with the Lord 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. It's a time for us that Paul's saying to grow up and quit acting like a baby. So he brings us to a conclusion in verses 15 and 16. Everything Paul's written up to this point comes together in verse 16, and we start reading the shift in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. See that word again, edifying. Do you see what he's saying here? The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And what's the result? We see it there in verse 16. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 
We need every Christ follower, every saint, as Paul describes us here, to do their part, to walk worthy of your calling so that we can edify, we can build each other up in love. This week I attended a funeral of a guy that I've come to know and, and respect over the last few years. And one of the pastors who spoke at this funeral read a poem called The Dash. And I'm not going to go through that whole thing. You ought to go home and Google it if you've never heard it. But it, it simply focuses on the thought of what will you do with the life that you've been given? You know, when you look at a tombstone in a graveyard, you see the date somebody was born, the date somebody died, and there's a dash in between. And so we have no control over the day we're born. We have little control over the day we die, but we have full control over what we do with that spot in the middle. I hope that when you ask yourself the question, what will I do with my dash? I hope that it'll be that you'll walk worthy of the calling of which you were called in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. God has called us to walk worthy of our calling by walking in love with others uh, and by doing our part to help the body to be healthy and to grow. Maybe you're here today and, and you're not a follower of Christ like I, I talked about in the beginning. And I hope that you've listened to these descriptors and you see what it looks like, what God is calling us to be. The, these descriptors of how we should live our life. And I'm going to tell you, you can't do that on your own. You can't be humble and gentle and patient, especially bear each other's love without the help of the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible. Listen, I have a hard enough time doing it with the Holy Spirit. And so maybe you're here today and you say, what does that look like? It looks like being the royalty that we talked about earlier. The, the, the child of the one true king. And so my question to you this morning is simple. Will you walk worthy of the calling that you have in your identity in Christ? We've laid it out. We've looked at the descriptors of what it looks like. We've looked at what to stay away from. And we've looked at how it brings together this edifying of love of the body together. Will you leave here today and say, hey, good sermon, pastor? Or will you make some notes and go, there's some things I need to work on? Would you bow your heads and, and just pray with me? And I want to ask you this morning, as you look at that circle of people in your life that maybe you don't even know, <clears throat> What would they say about you? Let's answer that question just quietly right there in our, in our seats, eyes closed, head bowed. What would they say about you? Would they say, yeah, you're humble, you're gentle, you're patient, you love people no matter how they treat you? Or would they say something different about you? What, what do you need to work on that list? Again, I didn't create the list. I'm the messenger. Are you here today and you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? You've never gotten to that point where you've said, you know what? I want to be the son or the daughter of the one true king. There's not a special prayer or a, a walk down the aisle that'll save you. But just like in a wedding ceremony where you make a commitment to another person before God that bounds you to that person for life and marriage. It's the same as true in our relationship with Christ. We have a conversation. We make a commitment to follow Christ. It binds us in this, this covenant relationship with Christ. And so if that's you today, I want you just to have this conversation with God. I'll just lead you through it. No special word. Just a conversation. It just says this. It says, Dear God, I know I'm not perfect, but you are. 
Today, I want to give you my life. Today, I want to enter in to a covenant relationship with you. God, would you save me from my sin? Would you help me to walk in a new direction and help me work on these descriptors to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be loving, and to be unified with the other saints, with the other followers of Christ. And I want you to say this to God if you just prayed that. Thank you, God, for saving me. Scripture is clear that when we make a decision in our hearts to follow Christ, our sins are gone. And I don't know about you, but that's something to be thankful for because my list is many. Thank you, God, for the people in this church. Thank you for saving us. I'm reminded every day, God, the only difference between me and a non-Christian is that I gave my life to you, but I was no further from you than they are. I have my stuff in my life. God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for allowing me to be the son of the one true king. God, I pray for anybody in this room today that may have had that conversation with you. Would you give them the strength to continue to move forward, to tell people about the decision they made, to begin to walk in this new identity that you've called them to. Lord, for the others in this room that are Christ followers, my prayer, God, is that nobody would leave this room the same as the way they came in. That every single person in this room, no matter if they've been a Christian for a year, if they've been a Christian for 40 years, they would leave here changed. And the power of your word, the Holy Spirit would go to work right now and begin changing the lives of the people sitting in this room. Because if not, then it's all done for nothing. So Holy Spirit, right now, move through this room and work in the hearts of your people. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for loving us. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to walk worthy of our calling, to, to not be like children tossed to and fro, to be able to discern truth from lies. We ask this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.